Hi, and welcome to this episode of A Cup of EJ, the podcast where you can learn a little bit more about the environmental movement at the same time it takes to drink a cup of coffee. If you tuned into the last episode, we talked about the entertainment industry and the environmental movement. This week, we're diving into community action and hope within the environmental movement with our guest, Ariel King. Would you like to introduce yourself, Ariel? Hi, everyone. My name is Ariel King. I'm an environmental justice educator, content creator, and media communicator, and really excited to be on the podcast today. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. And as always, I'm your producer and host for this episode, Bria, and this podcast is brought to you by the Environmental Justice Coalition. So our host idea for this episode was to focus on the dissociation between academia, environmental justice, as well as hope within environmental justice. So as you stated, Ariel, you're a lawyer. So for our listeners, could you please explain what drew you to law specifically and where and how in your journey of becoming an environmental justice advocate? Sure, yeah. Um, so I've always really been interested in environmentalism though I didn't always see myself in the environmental curricula that I was taking in in undergrad and even like in law school. But it wasn't until I got to college that I learned about the environmental justice movement and started to really dive into the history of environmental racism and understand that unequal distribution of environmental protection and enforcement is one of the main reasons why environmental injustice is allowed to perpetuate. And so to me, at the time, it seemed like the most logical step was to go to law school and kind of better understand the legal system so that I can work to support communities who are fighting against environmental injustice. And so that's that's kind of what led me there. My undergrad had a joint degree program with the law school, and so I was able to do my environmental sustainability studies undergrad concentration, as well as a master's in environmental law and policy in four years. And then while I was there, I did, I took the LSAT and, you know, applied to law school. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how I ended up in this path. I I also recognize the, the power of the law to just shape culture and dictate the ways that we interact with the world and interact with one another. And so I, I recognize that without equal say in the legal process and the legal decision-making process, there isn't going to be equal protection. And so one really big part of environmental justice in my mind is figuring out ways that we can actively engage communities that are going to be impacted by decisions in the decision-making process. So whether that be, you know, increasing and improving community engagement strategies, or just simply making sure that there is like equal representation on environmental justice councils and things at the municipal level. Yeah, for sure. I think law and politics have a huge intersection. And speaking of which I think a lot of people have now started losing trust within the government to do any substantial action and have turned to community activists and lawyers. So could you explain a little bit more about the work that you do as a lawyer and how that has shaped you giving trust back to those communities? So another really important element of environmental justice to me is this element of self-determination or figuring out opportunities for those who are impacted by decisions to actively engage not only in the decision-making process, but to understand and be able to have the ability to say no and really just like be involved. And so to me, that really includes and requires education and making the law accessible for people. So, you know, the, the law is a very, very 
elitist system and lawyers were kind of designed to be able to be the interpreters of this very different language. And so as a result, there have been significant barriers in just access and understanding of law and legal systems. And so something that I am really passionate about is making these things a lot more accessible and explaining them and breaking them down so that a person who didn't go to law school will still be able to understand what's happening and be able to have a say and be able to have enough education about a subject to be able to get involved in and yeah, be able to create and effectuate that self-determination and be able to get involved in decision-making processes. Yeah. And I think that's super important because EJ isn't just something that's like an, an abstract idea. There's real people behind these issues and there's ah. real people who are being affected. So sometimes like we often make these solutions or think of these solutions in a vacuum without talking to communities. And I think people are finally starting to realize that, hey, you know, we need to talk to people now to really make sure the decisions and the solutions we're making are impactful. So as a lawyer, you did say that, you know, one of your most important jobs is to talk to people. So how do you avoid this issue like in practice and in Vermont through things like the Environmental Justice Law Society and the Vermont Mapping Tool? Yeah. So while I was in law school, a group of friends and I really had this desire to create an environmental justice law for the state of Vermont. When we created the Environmental Justice Law Society back in 2017, not only did residents in Vermont not fully understand environmental justice, but neither did state officials. And so we were talking to the environmental agency for the state. They're like, no, we don't have environmental injustice issues. I mean, that's usually a black issue. Like that's a person of color issue. And we have a predominantly white state. So there's no way that we could be experiencing environmental injustice. And so it required a lot of education to be able to even like overcome that misconception and that hurdle. We recognize that there are a lot of environmental injustice. There are, you know, toxins and pollutants that are in the soil that are contaminating people's homes and their access to, you know, clean water and clean air and just breathable spaces and, and livable spaces that are, you know, free from toxins. And so it, it required not only education on our behalf to make sure that we were being the best advocates we could be, but also education to these agencies. And so they started coming to our events and like taking ridiculous amounts of notes um, and, you know, really understanding and learning about environmental justice through the work of students, which I am really inspired by and like really excited that I was a part of. And so from there, we, we decided that we wanted to start doing listening sessions around the, the state of Vermont in communities that were environmentally overburdened in order to determine what the most pressing environmental justice issues were. And so pre-COVID, we were able to do a few in-person listening sessions where we you know, brought community members in, we compensated them for their time, we fed people dinner, we had childcare available, because often these are some of the barriers that limit people's ability to be involved in these types of evening community meetings. And we wanted to eliminate those barriers as much as possible. And from there, we, we started partnering with the Department of Public Health, who wanted to start collecting that data with us. And, and from there, all of that data, even during COVID, when we were collecting things virtually, led to the development of the state's environmental justice law, which was passed a few months ago, and you know, which requires the development of a mapping tool. So the organization that I partnered with has been working with the University of Vermont, specifically their like geography program, to create a GIS mapping tool that will be able to help 
overlay different environmental injustices and make it easier for decision-making and prioritizing certain communities for different types of aid. So really looking forward to seeing like how that mapping tool comes together. But, you know, I think the most important part is making sure that community members are at the forefront of the decision-making and of the planning process to make sure that their, their needs, their goals, and their desires are being heard and validated. Yeah, and congrats on the law passing that's huge. And I hope other states obviously follow suit with what Vermont did. And you said you did this as a student. And a lot of student activists are now seeing like the problems within their own communities, but kind of don't know where to start. Do you have any recommendations for these students when they see these injustices? Because sometimes it seems the state office is so far away and they're unreachable on an unreachable pedestal at times. But do you have any advice for talking to them? One thing that's really important is showing up. You know, most communities are experiencing environmental harm, are talking about it. You know, it's not something that people are ignoring. It's people's health and livelihoods on the line. So there are going to be meetings. There are going to be discussions. So making it a point to show up to those meetings, introducing yourselves and making clear that you want to support and you know, from there, working with your institution to see if there's any way to bolster that support and strengthen it. But even without that, there are tons of ways that you can be of service and of support without the backing of your institution. And that really using your own education and using the connections that you make. I mean, social media is such an important and beneficial tool right now to be able to connect people and connect ideas. So I think even if you're providing a platform for a an issue that uh, a community is experiencing, you know, as college students, how cool would it be to do a petition or, you know, make a TikTok that goes viral, like talking about an issue and giving a very clear call to action. These are things that students can do and they, they can make a huge difference. And so, and I think also a really important aspect of this is asking when you're at these meetings, how can I be of service? What do you need the most of? How can we be of support? Because I think one of the worst things ever is going into a community and assuming that you know what the needs are. So I think it's really important to always to show up, to listen, and to ask. And I think those are really the the essential first elements of getting involved in community organizing work. That's really important. And I think that sometimes we often just expect solutions to kind of work without even talking to people. So yeah. thank you so much for highlighting that. Also in the EJ movement, there's a lot of people from a lot of diverse backgrounds and lived experiences. And especially as a lawyer, you know, you see a lot of different viewpoints when you're probably writing law and trying to incorporate everyone's perspective. So it's a just and fair system. But how do you think all these different groups can work together within the EJ space to make something that's productive and move the world forward to a more equitable environment? And how have you tried to make this happen? I think one main thing that the environmental justice movement is lacking right now is adequate funding. There are tons of studies that show that communities that, you know, environmental justice organizations just are not receiving the same level of funds and funding, whether it be from foundations or from the government. And that's for various and sundry reasons, but primarily because there tend to be longstanding structures in order to access that money that, you know, and there are barriers to even understanding 
understanding the what it takes to to be able to apply for those types of funds. So I think that there there definitely needs to be a lot more intentional investment in communities because we have found that communities who are experiencing first and worst environmental harm, environmental hazards, understand these issues so intimately because they're experiencing them on a daily basis. And so seeking solutions from people who are experiencing this harm is probably going to be most beneficial. And so, you know, there there is a significant role amongst not only the government, but also private industry to be able to, again, just stop and listen and validate the lived experiences of people who are being harmed and give them space and a platform to be able to be involved in decision making and be involved in solutions. All over the world, we've seen that we're learning from the knowledge of people of color, indigenous people who have been land stewards and have been tending to this planet in really mutually beneficial ways for millennia. And so there's there's obviously so much to learn there. And yes, it, it really comes down to validating lived experiences, listening, giving funding to contribute to meaningful solutions. And yeah, we just need to make that happen. And so in, in my work, I, I really try to amplify the stories of people who are working on the front lines and working towards solutions. So I I host a podcast called The Joy Report, and it's all about positive climate solutions through the lens of environmental justice and intersectionality, really focusing on solutions that are being driven by people of color and other marginalized people who are generally excluded from the traditional environmental movement and giving them space and a platform to be able to showcase the incredible work that's being done in their communities and the ways that they are changing the world. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my personal contribution. And I look forward to emphasizing and amplifying more of those stories, because I I think it's really important, especially in the midst of so many crises to really find ways to show stories of individual people and really give faces to these crises, because otherwise people tend to like gloss over them, especially when so many things are happening at once. And so storytelling is just a really, really important element of action and social change. Right. And I think that's super important because stories can stick to us. And that has been something that I've learned the hard way in a way. And I also, please go listen to The Joy Report. It's an amazing podcast. I do listen to it. So you're doing a great job with that. But also, you know, you talked about a little bit earlier how EJ lawmakers are like, this is like predominantly a Black problem. It's predominantly like communities of color face EJ issues. But Vermont, Mm -hmm. you know, we're a very white state. We don't face this problem. So that just proves how EJ hasn't been the most inclusive space and has been recognized as this is only something that's faced by communities of color and not communities all across the world or even communities that have various lived experiences and people who experience poverty are not excluded from this space. So even though you talked about this a little bit earlier, how are you actively fighting to make your voice heard as well as making sure the voices of your community members are heard as well? Because sometimes you can think of social media as a little bit of a vacuum because, you know, your feed is personalized for you. So for people who want to know more, they'll find out more. But for people who don't know how big EJ has become and how big of an issue it is, how do you make sure that they do know that it's an issue. I'm not sure how I make other people know. I, you know, I I only have control over what I have control over. Um, (laughs) But I think the, the role that everyone can play in this movement is to 
speak about these issues, right? I think everyone can contribute to this movement by giving it voice and really emphasizing the the value of caring about people and planet at the same time, about caring about community over consumption, about caring about people over profit, and really just emphasizing these values and talking about the ways that if we are continuing and perpetuating the status quo, then it's going to continue harming the same people. And these same people are going to experience not only environmental hazards, but also the climate crisis at large, first and worst, while contributing the absolute least to what has led to it. You know, and and that conversation can come up in so many different ways and so many different avenues. And so, you know, if you talk about fashion, for example, you can talk about fast fashion and talk about the impacts of overconsumption and talk about it as a global environmental justice issue. You can talk about the workers who are in factories and facilities that are being underpaid and completely exploited and the way that you know, textile waste is being exported to developing nations. So there are just all of these conversations that can be had and they can dictate our choices really on a daily basis. And so it really, in my mind, my contribution to this is sharing the ways that I am making these choices and making these changes and encouraging others to not only, you know, make changes, but also do your own research. Something that we really emphasize on the Joy Report is, you know, this is a primer. This is an introduction to a topic. We really encourage people to not just take our word for it, really go out and learn more and experience and identify what connects you to this issue. One thing I tell people who are wanting to get involved in this movement is you have to find your why. You have to figure out what makes you passionate in this space. There are so many ways that you can contribute to the fight for climate action and the fight for environmental justice that, you know, can be created in so many different pathways and all of our different backgrounds can lend themselves to positive contributions to this movement. So really identifying and crystallizing your why, I think not only helps you understand why you're involved in this space, but also can sustain your action. And so you know, on the days when it's really hard to be involved and you don't want to be involved and you feel like policy is not moving fast enough and all of these things, you'll want to keep going because you recognize and you have this why that will help you with that. Yeah. And I think finding your why as an activist is especially important because burnout is something that's commonly faced, which we'll talk about a little bit later after we talk a little bit more about inclusivity, because I talked to Ilana Cohen, who's headed like the divestment initiative at Harvard. And I think it's really interesting that this connection between academia and the environmental movement. Yeah. And like, for example, I think Cornell got a bunch of money from ExxonMobil to conduct climate studies. And a lot of other colleges have been in the same position. So I guess this is also like another way of greenwashing and it's kind of like a weird contradiction that's hard for a lot of people to understand. So from your personal experience, can you elaborate on the dissociation between academia and environmental justice and what you've seen personally? Sure. I mean, in undergrad, I was an environmental and sustainability studies major. My you know concentration was in political ecology. And I, I mean, half of my tuition every single year was paid from a lawyer in oil and gas, right? There, there is this really interesting dichotomy that happens. But I recognize that for me, as a Black woman in this space, there are going to be limited funding opportunities. And so I made it my vow to, you know, work towards positive, you know, environmental action, regardless of where the money that funded my education came from. And that's not to give 
with that excuse to Ivy League institutions, I certainly think that there's a greater level of responsibility that comes with larger institutions because there's choice. Choice exists. And then I also recognize that we shouldn't be completely excluding private industry from contributing to climate action, to contributing to environmental change and environmental solutions. But there needs to be like a really deep and intentional conversation about what that looks like, right? If we're asking Exxon to fund climate studies, what is the end goal of those climate studies? And if it's contrary to the goals, desires, and needs of Exxon, will that still be able to be funded? Or is the end result skewed because of that relationship? And so there should still be investment, but it shouldn't be hindered by self-interest. And then I guess along similar lines, a lot of schools are actively funding and contributing to the fossil fuel industry, even though, I mean, this was something that was big when I first started college in 2014, like the whole divestment from fossil fuels movement. And I really thought we were over it by now, right? Like it's 2022. And unfortunately, so many major institutions are still actively investing funds into that. So I think there's a big difference between like receiving funds to do climate science and, you know, an institution contributing funds to the climate crisis. And so obviously needs to be a lot more transparency in terms of where money is going and where it's coming from so that students can be involved in discussions to determine what feels right and what is right and what's going to harm or hinder or help our future just generally. I think academia is such an interesting space full of contradictions and especially the <laughs> And divestment specifically, I was surprised because I heard about it in the news, you know, like, oh, all the like Ivy Leagues and prestigious institutions will all divest in fossil fuels. So I really thought it was over, but you learn like just last year in the last four or five years, that that's when colleges really started committing to divesting. And even then, it's yeah. just a pledge. We don't know if they're following through with it or just like, yeah, you know, I'll do it maybe later. <laughs> Yeah. And it's so dangerous with this idea of no continuity for institutional knowledge. The fact that students turn over every four years limits accountability. And so there needs to be some way to honor the consistency and honor the the fights of past students who have been talking about these issues for years. Absolutely. Right. And I think that's why it's so interesting when upperclassmen reach out, I think, to like people who are just getting to college. I hope you know this is a thing and I hope you get yeah. involved because I think yeah. that's what happened to me. She's like, oh, you know, you're in the climate change movement. You should join this at Cornell. That makes sense. I probably should. Um, but I think if she had never reached out to me, I didn't even know that it was, the fight was still happening. Actually get accountability as to what is happening when they divested. So yeah, and a, a lot of the things we talked about are hard topics off and like continuously talking about it for 365 days can get really tiring and draining. So what are some of the ways you take care of yourself as an activist, but also like make sure that you have enough stamina and endurance to really keep fighting and keep progressing the movement forward? I am fueled by just how beautiful this planet is. I I love traveling. I love being outdoors. And so the more of this world I see, the more value I you know, receive in trying to protect it and making sure that it's sustained and other generations can experience its beauty and its wonder. I'm also just, I love music. I love clothes. There are just like some things that I do in my personal life to sustain myself and think a, a really big part of just being an advocate and being involved in such a serious, heavy thing is community. And 
finding other people who are contributing to this work, but are also willing to dance around with you and be silly because it both have to exist. We have to honor our full humanity if we want to be able to sustain ourselves in this movement. And then also for me personally, helping out and writing the scripts for the Joy Report has really helpful because, you know, I get to research positive climate solutions. I get to research positive news that's happening all over the world related to climate action. And just seeing that there are so many people doing good work to save this planet really just reminds me and invigorates me and helps me, you know, realize that not only do I have a place in this movement, but I am I am surrounded by other people who are really wanting to make change. So yeah, that's that's how I try to stay positive. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to stay positive because the community of activists working towards EJ are all some of the nicest people I've ever met. And they always look out for you, always check up on you. So I think that's great that you found also that community and found ways to take care of yourself. But I think it's also really beautiful that you highlighted that, you know, what is the end goal, right? The end goal is to protect the planet so that other generations can see and can experience the same experiences that we've had living here. So I think, thank you so much for highlighting that because I think that's just not talked about also future generations, but we'll have to them and can they even go to these places to see you know I have the joy of being able to see waterfalls every day when I walk on campus but how long will they be there for so yeah thank you so much for highlighting that but that was my last question and I hope everyone got a little bit of hope and a little bit more happy so yeah I would again plug the joy report please go listen to it it's a great podcast and if you want to learn a little bit more about environmental stewardship environmental governance I think that's a great place especially like sustainable livelihoods is also a big thing that I think is highlighted in the joy report and that's something that I learned at college taking an environmental governance class so I think that's amazing that people can have this information from just a podcast Mm -hmm. but yeah so that's a wrap for this episode and hopefully you've learned a little bit more about the environment and maybe you've had a really long cup of coffee too (laughs) but make sure to follow us on instagram at the environmental justice coalition for updates on the podcast and send us a dm about how you like this episode ariel do you have anything that you'd like to plug last minute for our listeners No, I just want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to chat with you today. Oh, yes, I do want to plug Intersectional Environmentalist. That's the organization that I work with to develop the podcast. We're a climate justice hub really focused on amplifying the stories of underrepresented people in the environmental space and making the environmental movement more intersectional and accessible to all. So yeah, you can follow us on Instagram or any other social media. And we're starting to do some in-person events events and conscious climate concerts called Earth Sessions all over the U.S. And so you can follow us to, to learn more and see if one's coming to you. That's super exciting, but thank you so much. And see you all next time for the next deep dive into another environmental topic. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you.